Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Welcome back to Theology and Apologetics. Today we are going to be starting an expositional commentary on Psalm 84. We're going to go verse by verse and study this psalm, and the subject of this study is called Intimacy with God. Let's open with a word of prayer and we'll jump straight in. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for the glories and the truth that it contains. We pray now that you would just speak to our hearts, encourage us, Lord God, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. And we pray that we would be drawn close to you through the study of your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. Now, intimacy with God is a, is a topic that's really been burdened on my heart recently. Um, on the one hand, because when we study topics like this, we become acutely aware of our own failings. We can read the great stories and biographies of men and women of faith from, from Christian history, and it's easy to become awestruck by their devotion and the level of intimacy that they seem to display with God. And uh, we notice maybe that we're lacking that sort of intimacy with God in our lives, and it makes us desire that, and that's a good thing. Yet on the other side of the coin, we live in a cursed and hectic, fast-paced world, that is seemingly no friend to such aspirations. The time we actually have for cultivation of intimate fellowship seems to be in short supply. Yet often we sometimes realise that maybe we're using this as an excuse. Maybe it's actually the intense desire for this intimacy that is lacking. We read about the fruits of it and we want those fruits, but we're unwilling to go the, the way of sacrifice and, and diligence that we need to cultivate this relationship. I want to try and encourage us all, myself included, to desire and seek this deeper level of intimacy with God. Maybe you can relate to one of these issues as I go through them. You struggle to read your Bible. I mean, you know you should, and maybe you, you tick off a chapter every day on your reading plan, but you're really not enjoying it. You're not expecting to hear from God, and you're not engaging the text at a, at a level that you feel comfortable with. It's a dry time, unfruitful time. Maybe your prayer life is struggling. We read how people used to spend hours in prayer, but if we're honest, we often struggle to spend more than five to ten minutes before we start wanting to check our phones or thinking about what else we should be doing. Maybe we acknowledge the existence and reality of hell, but that still doesn't give us a burden for the lost. Now, these are all things that I believe we all struggle with, maybe one or all of these things at the same time. And I believe these things are symptoms due to our lack of intimacy with God. You see, we are only as intimate with God as we choose to be. Listen to this quote by J. Oswald Sanders. He says, Both scripture and experience teach that it is we, not God, who determine the degree of intimacy with him that we enjoy. We are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. And true, there are times when we would like to know a deeper intimacy. But when it comes to the point, we are not prepared to pay the price involved. The qualifying conditions are more stringent and exacting than we are prepared to meet, so we settle for a less demanding level of Christian living. That's a convicting quote because I think we all know exactly what he is talking about. And I believe that Psalm 84 speaks into this. Let's turn to that now, please. You'll notice at the top of the psalm, it says a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now this is very interesting, usually we gloss over these little um, superscriptions, they call them, at the top of the Psalms, but this is very interesting, because who were the sons of Korah? You see, we're about to read this Psalm that is all about the dwelling place and the, the, the tents of the Lord, and it's written by someone from the sons of Korah. Now if you go back with me to Numbers chapter 16, you'll learn about the sons of Korah. You'll learn more um, pointedly about the rebellion of Korah. It says in 16, chapter, Numbers 16, verse 3, 
that the sons of Korah assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The sons of Korah rebel against the authority of Moses and Aaron. Moses spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take senses for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Listen to this verse. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to him? And and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers. And are you seeking for the priesthood also? You see, it was the duty of the sons of Korah to do the service of the tabernacle, to manage it, take it up, take it down, look after all the furnishings involved with it. It was a holy and privileged service but they were now coveting it wasn't enough for them it had become regular and mundane and they were coveting the actual power and authority that came with the priesthood the the ironic priesthood and they rebelled and Moses brings this rebellion to the Lord and he says the Lord will choose who is who is holy who who has got the rightful authority here and they have to bring these censers and lay them before the Lord and the story goes obviously that they do this Each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And then it says that the Lord obviously appeared and spoke, and he basically tells them, if you're with the Lord, separate yourself now from the sons of Korah, they are in rebellion. Verse 26, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in their sin. sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abiram and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway at the tents. Now this is important. Note, this is all happening in the just right outside the tents of meeting because we see this in Psalm 84. And this phrase, the tents of wickedness, we see this come up in Psalm 84. And then what happened? Verse 31, And it came about as he finished speaking all these words that the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possession were swallowed up in the earth. Now we learn a little later that there were in fact just two people, two we know of, who survived, the actual sons of Korah. They were clearly not with Korah. They did not align themselves with Korah during this rebellion, which implies that they were faithful. And they were, again, they ended up being singers in the house of God. And it is descendants of these two people, the faithful ones, that are now writing Psalm 84, the sons of Korah. So they have seen firsthand what happens when you take intimacy with God for granted, when you don't seek true intimacy, when you covet position and power. And they have seen their whole family destroyed. So it's with this background that we need to move into this psalm. And it's only only by understanding this that you'll understand and sense the real longing that these people have for the courts of the Lord. So let's jump straight in. Psalm 84 verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. How lovely are your dwelling places. And this really sets the the theme for the entire psalm. It's like a, a bookkeeper to the whole psalm. And it's a wonderful verse. 
How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. So he says, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. The courts of the Lord, this is the place where the communion would have happened. He longs for communion with God. And the word longs here is a very strong word. It means to be made pale from intense longing. Uh, yearned or fainteth, some of your translations may read there. This means to come to the end of oneself by intense longing. So not only is it a longing that makes us pale or sick or ill, it brings us to the point of death. We come to our, the end of ourselves by this intense longing. That is how drastically and how desperately these sons of Korah, the writer of this psalm, longed for the dwelling places of God. He longed to be in the courts, that place of communion with God. Now let me ask us this, this is challenging. Do we long for God like this? I know we want God, we can say that, we want to be, you know, be conformed into his image and be a disciple, but do we understand what that sort of longing is like? Do we know what it means to come to the end of ourselves with a longing for deeper communion with God? Listen to this quote by E.W. Tozer. He says, I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that many of us, with many of us, he waits so long, so very long, in vain. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is the heart here. This is talking about the inner man, the emotions and the intellect and your soul. And then his flesh, this is the outer man. The point is, the heart and flesh together. This is saying, all of my body, all of my being, everything that I am is singing. And the word there, sing, could more accurately be translated, cry out. Everything that I am is crying out for joy to the living God. Now this is important. It's not a cry of anguish. It's a cry of joy. And this should be an element in our Christian life. Because joy comes from knowing God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on. You know the verse in Galatians. And often us Christians, we're, maybe we don't display this in our lives. We're often known for being quite miserable. <laughs> now, I believe, again, this is a symptom for a lack of intimacy with God. Why? Because in Psalm 16, we have the, uh, the path to joy. In your presence is fullness of joy, it says in Psalm 16. And this is what the psalm is talking about. Verse 3. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. You see, what he's looking on here, the psalmist, it's a nice poetic picture. He's looking on at the house of the Lord, the tabernacle of the Lord. And he's able to just watch the birds who can just fly over the, the threshold and land right on the, uh, the roof of the, of the tabernacle here even make nests in the side of it. They have just unrestricted access to the very place of the dwelling place of God. They're not bound by the Levitical law that obviously gives mandates on who can and cannot enter. And he's just so desires to be with the Lord that he's just sitting there watching these birds and contemplating the access they have to God and saying, I want to be even like those birds. It's an amazing picture and a lovely imagery that we have of this man's heart and desire. And at this point, let's just stop and back up. We see in these first three verses that we've seen three different names used for God. You see, names are very important. 
because they mean something. Every time you see a different main, it shows us a part of the character of the one who is being named. And it also shows the understanding of God that this psalmist had. Verse 1, he says, O Lord of hosts. That's Adonai Sevaot. That's the first name. And the Lord there is what we call the Tetragrammaton. It's the yud vav in Hebrew, the holy name of God from Exodus chapter 3. It comes, it's a word that comes from the verb hayah, which means I will be. I will be. See, there's a connection between the name and being itself. God is the source of all being. Everything else derives its being from him. He is the ultimate reality. This is God. This is the Lord of hosts. Hosts obviously referring to armies. He is the Lord of the armies of heaven. Verse 2. My, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You see, this is in opposed to the dead idols of the nations around them. Jeremiah 10, verses 9 to 14. Just read a part of it. It says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And at his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. The God of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is the true God, the living God, as opposed to the dead idols around him. And then verse 3 my king and my God. Now the word of king here is more of a title rather than a name, you could say, but it's looking forward to the kingdom age. Zechariah 14.9, and the Lord, caps again, will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. There will be no challenge to his kingly rule, his right to reign when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. He will rule. You see, just from these names, you see the, the psalmist has a deep understanding of God. And what we think about God is very important because it affects how we worship him. If we have a low view of God, we'll have a low worship of God. If we want to lower him so that he doesn't offend us in various ways, we, we, so he's more on our level, maybe more palatable to humanity, then that is lowering the character of God. It is presenting a false God, in fact making God in our own image. But if we accept the God who was revealed in the scriptures, we will worship him in reverence and honour and give him the place of preeminence that he should have. Verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. You see, this is how blessed, how happy, how fortunate are the ones who are continually engaged in worship. That's what this is really getting at, the ones who are dwelling in your house, because they're ever praising you. It's a praise to praise, praise God. Verse 5, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. The highways to Zion. This is the way, this is a verse from the Isaiah, I believe you find this phrase, but it's talking about the journey, the pilgrimage that the pilgrim is taking up to the house of the Lord. It is the way to the dwelling place of God. Someone who is actively seeking and desiring communion with God walks upon the highways of Zion. Verse 6, passing through the valley of Bacha, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. That's verse 6 and 7. Now, Bacha, this word, it's a, it's a difficult word to translate. It has the connotation of, of weeping. And, it, it, and it's generally interpreted to mean that upon this journey, this highway to Zion that the pilgrim must take, he will encounter trials difficulties, hard times. But with God, even a valley or a dark place can be turned into a spring of blessing. The early rains, they go from strength to strength. We gain and draw our strength from God. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear 
O God of Jacob. Now this is an example of what we would term Hebraic synonymous parallelism. And don't let that throw you off that word. What that basically means is, uh, j just as in English poetry we use um, rhyme, don't we, to make it memorable, the, the feature of Hebrew poetry, of which the Book of Psalms is, is you find lots of examples of what we term parallelism. There are many different sorts, and in this in this type, you have the thought of the first line repeated and reinforced in the second. Usually they are reversed. So you just read it with me. You see, O Lord God of hosts, that's the name, and then the request, hear my prayer. And then in the second half of the verse, it's, it's reversed. So you have the request first, give ear, and then the name, O God of Jacob. You just Same thing, reinforced and switched round. It's just a parallelism. It's, the way, it's a good way of memory. But he says, O God of Jacob, we have another name here. And this is the name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and J Jacob, the God who uh, is faithful to keep his covenant to a thousand generations. This is the God being emphasized here. So again, we see the depth of knowledge of, of God that the psalmist portrays. He says, hear my prayer. God hears prayer. You see, intimacy is vitally connected with prayer. In fact, all of the Christian life is. John 15:7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We abide in him, but his word must also abide in us. It's so vital to have intimacy with God. Christians have to be engaged in study of the word of God. And that is a study that has the, the result of having us live the word of God. R.A. Torrey said that triumphant prayer is almost impossible where there is neglect of the study of the word of God. Jesus said, Matthew 21:11, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, prayer is symbolised in the, in the Bible often by incense, the burning of incense, continually sweet-smelling aromas going up to God. In the tabernacle, in the temple, the altar of incense, there was to be a continual burning. It was all day, all night. Uh, this is a great picture. This is why the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. And let me ask, how much incense do we actually burn, considering that prayer is vital to our fellowship with God? Ian Bounds said, those who know God the best are the richest and most powerful in prayer. Little acquaintance with God and strangeness and coldness to him make prayer a rare and feeble thing. Unfortunately, it's a shame that I, I think many of us can understand what he's writing about there. Sometimes it's due to sin in our lives or sometimes it's just due to our own apathy. But the longer we take to come back to God and seek him, the harder it is to come to him in prayer. But he is always there and he hears our prayers. Let's go to verse 9 and finish off these last few verses now. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. God now, uh, he's our shield. That's speaking of the protection that he gives us. And then the anointed. Now this could either be referring to the kind of anointing of the Davidic king, the Messiah who's going to come, or, or just one who is anointed for God's service. And then verse 10, probably the most famous verse in the, in the whole psalm. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And he, he really starts to sum up here now. And obviously we know there's a famous hymn that comes from, from this verse, but it's the this is the son the sons of Korah, remember? And it's almost like he's reliving part of his history here. He uses these terms, the threshold of the house of God. And you might remember in Numbers 16, it was at the threshold of the house of God where the showdown between Moses and the sons of Korah took place. Uh, where God opened up the ground and swallowed the rebellious sons of Korah. That was right outside the threshold of God. And you notice the phrase, uh, the psalmist says here, that uh, he, he would rather stand at the threshold um, of the house of the God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
that's the exact phrase that we found in Numbers 16 that described the, those associated with the rebellion of Korah. So it's almost like he's looking back through the lens of what happened to his family here and looking and saying, now I know that my family were destroyed for their pride and their arrogance and for rejecting the presence and the duty that God had called them for and coveting more position and power. But I have understood and I've seen what happens and I long just to simply be with the courts of the Lord, to dwell even at the threshold of the house of God. It's better to be near God than it is to be in the tents of wickedness. You see, when our eyes are focused on the Lord, when our desire is to commune with him, when we spend time in his presence, it's only then that the pleasures of the world will pale. It comes from being in the presence of God. Now, there are ple the pleasures of the wicked are temporary and futile. And we can look around at what goes on in the church today, even what goes on in the world and, and, and the church, unfortunately, in many instances. And it may seem that people prefer to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It may be easier, but we want to be in the courts of the Lord. One day in the presence of the Lord is better than a thousand outside. It's a beautiful uh, word, a bit of poetry there that the psalmist writes, representing his desire and heart for God. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. The final two verses, 11 and 12. The Lord is a sun and a shield. This is God's overall provision and protection is what this is speaking of. God said to Abraham, I am a shield to you, didn't he? And this is another interesting thing here. In biblical hermeneutics, that is the study and interpretation of the Bible, there is a principle called the principle of first mention. And this is basically the, the thing that scholars have noticed, that whenever a word is first used in the scriptures, um, it's an important time. It seems to be connected to an event or something that is very significant. and We should take notice of it. And this reminds me that what we have here, this is one of the first mentions of grace. The Lord gives grace and glory in the psalm here. Now, if we take these two words, we see that the first mention of grace in the Old Testament comes in Genesis 6-8. That is, uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and therefore he was preserved through the time of judgment of the flood. And then we see it again in the New Testament for the first time in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, where the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with the Lord, or found grace, it could be translated as the same word. And what is significant, see that these are the first two mentions in both the Old and the New Testaments, and both two times it is connected with a story that ultimately results in the salvation of the human race. Preserved first through Noah and those who came off the ark with him, secondly the salvation is bought for everyone through the son that would come through Mary, the ultimate son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone will be saved, but I'm saying a salvation was made available to all through his provision. Because this is a good picture of what grace does. Grace saves. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one should boast. It says that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And walk here is in the present participle. That means it, it's talking about a continuous action. As we grow and we walk and we follow our Saviour, he will not withhold that which is good from us. And that doesn't mean things that necessarily make us happy, I believe that means things that will bring us closer to Jesus as we walk upon the highways of Zion to the courts of the Lord. O Lord of hosts, that same name again, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. How blessed, how happy is the man who has faith in God. The one who has faith in the Lord of hosts, 
this is the Lord and the desire that we need from our hearts. We need to have that desire that we can say, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord, and our hearts and our souls sing and cry out for the living God. Thank you for listening. It's been great studying this psalm with you. I'd just like to remind you that if um, you're blessed by these teachings, that if you could maybe uh, subscribe to the podcast and go on to iTunes or SoundCloud, whichever podcast app you use, and leave a review. If you have any questions or topics you'd like addressed, feel free to go to the website. The, the address will be announced in the end credits. And just go onto the contact form there, fill in a question and send it to me and I'll answer them, maybe do a podcast on them. Or if you have any uh, speaking requests or queries, again, please use the contact form on the website. Until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.